Hear the word of the Lord from Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 14 through 19. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on, on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you didn't know, for the last 11 years, um, we have been setting up and tearing down every Sunday morning. So it's not just that we have this building and we get to use this space, but all of this up here, all of these cords, the sound booth back there, all of the classroom stuff, all of the foyer stuff, all of that gets set up and, and torn down after the service every single Sunday. And that's been being done primarily by volunteers. So one of the reasons we want a new building is so that we can, uh, we don't have to do that every single week. And we don't have what happened this morning. We have all kind of confusion because all it takes is one cord to get plugged in the wrong spot. And then all of a sudden things don't work right. Right? So that's one of the reasons most people, most people just don't realize that they think maybe this stuff stays set up all week, or it's just, we just plug in the sound system for the, the, the junior theater. But no, this is all of our stuff. It gets got brought, carried up. It gets carried up from downstairs. Most of it every single week and brought back down. And we've been doing that for 11 years. See, listen, when I first started discipling Joel, he refused to work out. <laughs> so I said, okay, carry the speakers up and down for 11 years, bro. Get a workout. So when Joel stops working, when Joel starts working out, we'll get a new building is what I'm saying. All right. Maybe not, but I, so I also just want to welcome you this morning My, again. Uh, first, I want to tell you also, thank you for the gifts for Pastors Appreciation Month. Thank you. You guys made meals for us during uh, Wednesday morning, 6 a.m. We meet together as elders. We pray for you and we work through things in the church. We had meals a lot of the weeks uh, over the past month. Huge blessing to us. And it's just a, really a joy to be one of your pastors. And it's a gift that we get to serve people that love God and love us well. So thank you so much for that. And if you are new here, we are studying, as a church, the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, and we study scripture together because this is God's word, and if we want to know God, if we want to know what God has already done for us and what, what he requires of us, uh, we've got to know what his word says. Everything else is just man's opinion. So every week, we come together to worship God and to be instructed by his word. Now, this week, we are finishing up chapter 5 of Nehemiah, and we're going to learn, really, we're going to learn some more crucial leadership lessons from Nehemiah. Now, one of the things that I've been discuss, discovering as I've studied this book is the book of Nehemiah probably has more leadership lessons and principles than any other book of the Bible. See, we, in this book, we see God call one man to lead a risky, costly, and incredibly difficult endeavor to rebuild the protective walls outside of Jerusalem in the midst of many enemies who want to see them fail. And of course, he can't do this on him by himself, so he's got to gather a lot of people together to help him get this project done. It's a huge lesson in leadership. Now, so many of these lessons can easily be translated to wherever God has called us to lead. Of course, he's called us to lead ourselves. He's called us to lead in our homes. He's called us to lead in our workplaces, at our schools, or in the church. 
There's a lot of different avenues and areas that God's called us to lead. But God has called all of us to be leaders somewhere. And if you want to know how to be a good and godly leader, Nehemiah is a great place to study. Now, if I had to distill today's lesson down to one line, it would be this. Leaders go first. Leaders go first. Now, wherever you want to lead someone, that means to be a leader, you need to be out front and you need to lead the way. Leaders go first. Now, that's where we're headed this morning. Let me pray for us and we can get to work in Nehemiah chapter 5. Gracious Father, we thank you for calling us in here this morning. We thank you for even the, the, the blessing that this building is and the blessing all of our leaders are and all of our servants are that, that set up and tear down week in and week out. We thank you for the work that went before, uh, before us to make this a reality. These things don't just happen. It takes service, it takes sacrifice, it takes commitment, and we thank you for that. Father, we thank you uh, for your word, that your word is what is true. Our emotions sometimes are true and sometimes are uh, wrong, that our feelings you know, come and go, but your word is true. I pray this morning that you would instruct us from your word, that the false beliefs that we have would fall away, that the improper uh, desires, improper affections that we have would be aligned according to your word, that you would help us, Lord, um, that you would, even now, because I am a sinner and I need your grace and I need your help, that you would even now think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords so that it would be all of you and none of me. God, I pray that your people would hear your voice and not mine only, and that you would uh, receive glory because your people worship you because of what you have done uh, in your word and through your word. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen and amen. All right, we are in Nehemiah chapter 5. We're starting in verse 14. We finished the first 13 verses last week. And right away, you're going to notice, well, if you're an observant reader, you're going to notice something's different about today's text. Look at chapter 5, verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. Now, right away, we see something unique here. So far, the book of Nehemiah has been chronological. Nehemiah has been describing for us how he has heard God's call to return and to build the wall in Jerusalem, how he went to the king and got the king's blessing and, and what he did immediately on his arrival and how he rallied the troops together. And it went kind of step by step in a chronological order of how he went about uh, attacking this project. But this section is different. Nehemiah treats this section almost like a personal journal entry. See, if you're aware of the books of 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah, more than likely, those four books were all originally one book, put together by Nehemiah. Some say Ezra, but I think Nehemiah, I think Nehemiah added his on to the very end. I think Nehemiah chronicled all things together. That's why 1st and 2nd Chronicles doesn't have the name of an author. And then we go to Ezra, and that was Ezra's piece, and, and, and Nehemiah added it in there, and then Nehemiah finished it out with his own stuff by his own hand and put it all together and, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So as he's doing that, here's what you need to realize. This is years later, and he's writing about this uh, adventure that he went on. Gosh, you know what I'm thinking about. He went on uh, this adventure that he went on years previously, and then as he's writing it in a chronological order, he puts this little journal entry in here, all right? 12 years, it's, he, he, and he says this, I've been a governor now for 12 years, or I was a governor over Jerusalem or over Judah for 12 years. And this is the first time we've officially heard the words that he's the governor, okay? We, I, I, I knew it, so I've been saying it from the very beginning. But this is the first time he mentions, oh yeah, yeah, the king has actually made me an official governor, and I'm governor there for 12 years. So that's his official leadership position. Now, I want to remind you really quick what's going on at this moment in the rebuilding project. 
that God's people are surrounded by enemies on the outside of the city who are trying to get them to stop the project. They are threatening them with physical violence and also assailing them with lies and propaganda to discourage them from continuing the hard work. These enemies are doing everything in their power to get them to stop. But the people of God keep soldiering on with a tool to build in one hand and a weapon to protect them and their loved ones in the other. But then we saw last week, on top of all of that, there was also a threat rising from within the community. They were experiencing a famine in the culture, a kind of downturn in the economy, you could say. And then they got hit on top of that with the king's tax that they couldn't pay. And they were now at risk of losing everything to their creditors. And their creditors, of course, uh, were the big threat. And the, the sad reality was that the creditors were actually believers from among them. They were the rich believers among them, lending them money at exorbitant interest rates and taking advantage of the poor during this uh, difficult season. So Nehemiah hears of this, gets really angry. It says he was very angry, righteously angry. And he stands up and he basically, as a governor, he preaches a sermon and he condemns them for their unrighteous, uh, unjust behavior. And he tells them to repent and give everything back to the poor that they took from them. Now, let me just say, if you are in this situation, and you see a governor, okay? You could say, call him a prince. Now remember, let me remind us of this. When Nehemiah went to the king and he asked for the resources to build the walls, he also asked for the resources to build a house. Do you remember that? And so when Nehemiah came back, he didn't just build the wall, he also built him a house. And what you're gonna realize as, as we read further in our text today, he built a very sizable house, He's got 150 people eating with him on a daily or weekly basis, okay? He's got a king's hall. He's got a governor's mansion, let's say. Now, just imagine you are working and you're doing all this work and and you see the governor, who himself is obviously a wealthy man with a wealthy mansion, and he comes and says, stop taking advantage of the poor. What are you doing? Give back all all this this stuff you've taken from them from unjust means. Give it all back to him. Now, A natural response to that kind of situation would be, well, that's easy for you to say, Mr. Big House, right? Okay, governor, that's easy for you to say. Like, you're probably more well-off than we are, right? You're richer than us. Look at you and your big house. Look at you with all your employees and all your servants and all these huge extravagant parties that you're throwing all the time. Who are you to tell us not to get rich off this downturn in the economy? Now, this is a precarious leadership situation. Nehemiah is a wealthy governor telling people to worship God and not their wealth and to be generous to one another in this difficult season. Now, it's very easy for perception here. The perception would be that he looks like a hypocrite, right? That's perception. Now, many people say things like perception is reality. Now, that's not true. God, that is not true. Lord, your perception is not reality, but sometimes your perception you perceive as reality. That's a problem. So the perception is, look at this wealthy guy telling these other people to stop taking advantage of the situation. Who the heck does he think he is? But the interest from... But here's another precarious situation. From our vantage point, looking back on it, there's another danger danger as well, and that's this, is if Nehemiah goes public with his good works, if Nehemiah goes public with what he's been doing in secret, right, then he looks like an arrogant man who's patting himself on the back. So he's in a very difficult situation right now. Let me tell you something that I've struggled with for years, and I've shared this often with the elders. See, when I was being trained as a pastor, one of the communication strategies was to tell people about your weaknesses often. There's many times people say, you start off a sermon, share your weakness, share your struggle, share your sin, share how you're not living up to the passage, share this. And what it does is it kind of disarms people People have a wall up around the text and, and they're, you know, 
it kind of disarms people and it, it endears them to you. It makes you look more human. It makes you look more, uh, you know, sinner like the rest of everybody. So now, I, I believe that and I heard that. And when I was a youth pastor, that's, pretty, that's kind of what I did for a long time. But then I began to perceive that this rhythm was kind of, it seemed like it was skewing in one direction. So what happens in a church like this is you might have a pastor spend literally 15 minutes of a 30, 30 minute sermon talking about himself, his marriage, his failures, his sins, his kids, his funny foibles, all these different things. A good portion of the sermon is usually all about him. And here's what hit me as strange is people walk away from those sermons often saying, man, pastor so-and-so is so humble. He's so humble. Did you hear how I just shared his struggles and shared his sin? And it, it began, all of a sudden it began to hit me because then I saw people react to a preacher that would get up on stage and never share anything about himself and only get up and read the scripture and exegete the text and say, this says the Lord. And people would walk away from him saying, oh, guy's so arrogant. guy's so arrogant. And I, and I th- started thinking about myself. Hold on. The guy who spent half of his sermon talking about himself, he's the humble one? And the guy who spent no time talking about himself, he's the arrogant one? Something sounded a little fishy to me. So I, well, this is just awkward. Sorry. You get bugs landing on your iPad and stuff up here? This would not happen if we didn't have a rented building. <laughs> Everything's coming back to that. So, now, so I have tried purposefully to err on the side of, I don't want to talk about myself. I don't want to share about myself. It's not about me. It's about the word of God. It's about what God's doing here. It's about Jesus Christ. I want to talk about that. But what Nehemiah shows us, Nehemiah shows us there is a benefit in the balance. There is a benefit in the balance. And he shows us a little bit of that balance here as he writes this little journal entry that could be perceived wrong and is perceived wrong, I I would say, by many commentators. There are many commentators that say, Nehemiah's bragging here. Nehemiah's showing off here. I don't think he is. So what happens here is Nehemiah is going to teach us a very important leadership lesson, that you can't lead people to go to a place that you aren't willing to go first. Right? So Nehemiah here risks looking arrogant, and what he's going to do is he's going to tell the people, and he's going to tell us, what he's been doing behind closed doors. And the first thing he tells them is that he has been living off of his own acquired wealth, and he isn't taking his legal food allowance from their taxes. Look at verse 15. <clears throat> or actually the end of 14, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. Verse 15, the former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so. Now here's what he's saying. I have a legal right to take taxes from you and to feed myself, to feed my family, to feed my servants, to feed my administration. I have the right to do that, right? Now, that's the same, that's that's still true in our day and age today. The governors pay themselves off, or they get paid through, through our taxes. Nehemiah is saying, I have a legal right to do that, but this is interesting. He says, but I did not do it. I have not been doing it. So from the time I arrived here, he's saying, I've been living off my own dime, I've been paying my servants. I've been feeding myself. I've been taking care of my administration because I didn't want to be like the guys that came before me and I didn't want to put too heavy of a burden on the people, especially in this difficult season. Now, why would Nehemiah choose to live that way? Why would he choose the path of sacrifice, the path of difficulty, instead of just saying, hey man, it's my legal right to do it, might as well do it. Well, it tells us right there at the end of verse 15. Because of the fear of God. Because of the fear of God. Now, this is interesting. Four different times in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah specifically mentions 
the fear of God, and he always mentions it in a positive way. Now, it's a really important point. I told you a few weeks ago that the most repeated command in all the Bible is to fear not. See, our biggest temptations in life will always be to fear what we should not fear, to fear losing our reputation, to fear the opinions of others changing about us, to fear loss, to fear scarcity, to fear death. And God commands us in light of all of these realities and all of the dangers of our world to to fear not, that we are not supposed to fear these things. But this is what's so interesting. Do you know how you become a person who doesn't live in fear? Do you know how you become a person who isn't controlled by their fears? Now listen, I'm gonna gonna say, anxiety is a form of fear. Now we might not say, oh, I just live in fear all the time and I'm very afraid all the time. We might say things because it's more just culturally acceptable to say, I'm an anxious person, or I have anxiety. But anxiety is tied to fear. You're you're fearing something. Something, you're afraid of something, some calamity, some problem coming upon you that you aren't going to be able to solve, or you're not going to have the resources to be able to handle. Now, do you know how the scripture teaches us to, to not fear those things, to not live in fear? Well, this is interesting. And it's kind of a paradox, but I'm going to explain it to you. Here's the command. You won't give in to fear if you fear God. That's the paradox. See, when the Bible tells us to fear God, he's not telling us to be afraid of him or to be afraid of what he may do to us, though that is one aspect, that is a piece of the fear of God. We should Jesus used this specifically. He says, don't fear the one that can kill the body. Fear the one who can kill the body and soul in hell. Speaking of himself. So that is a reality. We should have that kind of fear of God that if I disobey him, if I walk away from him, it will not go well for me in this life or the next. We should have that reality. If you ignore God and if you reject his gift of salvation offered to you through Jesus Christ, you will be destroyed by him, body and soul in hell. So we should fear that. But fear has another aspect as well. And I would say the aspect of fear that is most commonly um, represented in Scripture is kind of translated in our, our day as awe or as glory or weightiness. It's, it's, our, uh, it's, it's worship. It draws you up into worship it. See, the thing you most fear has a kind of gravitational pull to it. So if you fear money, if money has the most glory in your life, the most weight in your life, if you think about money more than anything else, you're going to have a, your heart is going to have a gravitational pull to worship money. So you're going to read books about money, you're going to think about money all the time, right? You're going to have apps on your phone to take, make sure you can check your money, you'll be protecting your money. You're going to be probably stingy with your money. Now, when you fear God in this way, or when God is that which you most fear, you are drawn to Him. You're drawn to think about Him. You're drawn to study Him. You're drawn to worship Him. You're drawn to give other things to Him as acts of worship, your time, your money, your worship. He becomes our gravity. He becomes what what moves us. He's our weight. And one of the surprising paradoxes of the Christian life is this. The fear of God is the cure for a thousand lesser fears. Since I'm doing surprisingly well with my time, I'm going to go to, and I will just make up for that right now. We're going to go to Psalm 34. I have a few verses, but I think I might just read a good chunk of the psalm. Here's what David says. I will bless the Lord at all time. You hear worship. I will bless the Lord at all time. 
His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Now listen to this. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Now, how many in this room want that? Want to be delivered from all your fears. Now, if I, wanted, if I just started listing fears this morning, I could go on forever, right? There are a plethora of things to be afraid of, right? And the older you get, more so. Why? Because we live our life on a rising scale of difficulty. Young people, you think it's hard? Just wait. <laughs> Death is coming. Oh, not for me. Not for... Oh, yeah, 100%. 100% death rate. One guy got, or two, two guys got out alive, all right? One in the Old Testament, Jesus Christ, right? But he had to go through death even himself. So we live our life on a rising scale of difficulty. That means, here's the deal. You weren't afraid. When you're a single person, you're not afraid of losing your kids, are you? No. Get kids. Mm, have a lot of them. Multiply your fears. That's what happens. Right? I never worried about sticking my finger in a, in a light in a, or in a, in a socket, right? I just didn't think about it. Get kids. Now I got to buy things to put in the sockets. Right? Kids look at them. Okay. Going to kill us all, child. Now listen, many of us, if you grow up poor, you don't grow up fear in fear of losing your stuff. You don't have much stuff. Get more stuff, guess what you get afraid of? Losing your stuff. You live a life on a rising scale of difficulty, and the, more, the longer you live, the more things you have the opportunity to be afraid of losing, to be afraid of. And so here David, a king, by, right, a king, He's got fears multiplied. He's got his own personal fears. He's got his own familial fears, fears of his family. He's got his kingdom that he's got to worry about. He's got plenty of things to be afraid of. And what does he say? I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. I'm telling you, Christian, this morning, that is a promise that you can take to God and take to the bank. God can deliver you from your fears. But how does he do it? Verse 5. Those who look to him are radiant. Those whose gravity is towards him, those whose faces turn towards him, not to an idol, not to our kids, not to our families, not to our money, to him. They're radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. God will never let you down. He will never fail you. This poor man cried, David, the end of his life realizes what's important. This poor man. And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. What a testimony. Now, now verse 7 is going to tell us exactly how he did that. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. David says, God has delivered me from all of my fears. And how did he do that? The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. See, and he says later in verse 9, he says, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. Those who fear him have no lack. What delivers us from every other fear? The fear of God, the awe of God, the worship of God, having our attention on God himself and not on the stuff of this world. Why? Because God is eternal. We were made to live with him forever and he has taken care of not only our past, not only our present, but our future in entirety. The biggest issue we have is that we are sinners separated from a holy God. And God has taken, he has taken care of our greatest need. And the whole storyline of the Bible, as you read it, is this. If God has taken care of your greatest needs, won't he take care of your lesser needs? And Christians should say, yes, Absolutely. If God has silenced our greatest fear, eternal separation from God, won't he silence every other fear? 
This is something that I believe the modern church has lost, and this is why the modern church is anemic in our culture. It has no power in our culture. It looks just like our culture. We're just as anxious. We have just as many fears as our culture because we don't have a proper fear of God. And very few churches that I am aware of that I grew up in taught on the fear of God. We're going to go through that really quick here. Just a few. I just got a handful. Proverbs 1.7 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom instruction. It says this, if you want to know anything, you got to know God first. Why? Because God is the only thing that we can build our life on that has any eternal foundation. Everything else literally is man's opinion. You have no basis to trust your own rationality. You have no basis to trust your own sense of morality, your own sense of ethics of what is right and wrong. Those are all subjective realities that are different than the person next to you. If you want to be grounded in reality, eternal reality, you have got to begin with the fear of God. I could go on about that, but I won't. Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. What is wisdom? Wisdom is not just knowledge. Wisdom is to understand the way God made the universe, the way God has made me, and how to function rightly inside that universe. Okay? So it's the art. It's the art of living wisely. It's the the practice of the good life. And you can't learn how to live a life that is good here now and echoes on into eternity unless you have the fear of God. The fear of God, just like we see in Nehemiah, he fears God, so he's not taking advantage of this opportunity. He's going to sacrifice his own financial prosperity. He's doing that. That's that's a work, that's an act of wisdom that's coming out of the fear of the Lord. Another one, Proverbs 8:13. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. So Bible's saying here, I need to have a proper view of God, a proper fear of God in order to know what I should hate. And that is pride, that is evil, that is arrogance, perverted speech. I should hate those things because I fear God. Proverbs 14, verse 27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. Wow. That one may turn away from the snares of death. Here's the reality. When I am infatuated with God, when God has my gaze, he's leading me towards life and life more abundantly, even eternal life. And if I'm not properly fearing God, I'm I'm literally being led like a stag to the slaughter. I'm being led towards the way of death. Fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. Here's another one in the New Testament. Acts chapter 9, verse 31 says this. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The fear of, the, the fear of God was a component of the church when it was healthy and when it was multiplying. So it wasn't just this Old Testament thing. No, no, no post-Jesus' resurrection, post the Holy Spirit being poured out, the fear of the Lord is still meant to be uh, a a component of our worship together. So here's what I want you to see. What makes Nehemiah a great leader is that Nehemiah, first and foremost, fears God. That's who he's serving. That's who's foremost in his mind. That's who he's following. That's who his eyes are locked on. That's whose opinion matters more than anybody else. See, he fears God more than what his enemies can do. He fears God more than what his reputation looks like. He fears God more than his money, literally here. He fears God more than his own comfort and security. He's willing to risk it all on this endeavor. Why? Because he fears God. God's leading him. That's the mark of a good leader. They fear God. And then the second mark of a good leader here is leaders go first. Look at verse 16. I also persevered in the work on this wall 
and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered here for the work. So this is interesting. Nehemiah, in this little journal entry, he's telling us a couple things. One, one, he feared God. Because he feared God, he didn't fear anything else. So he didn't fear that he had to take advantage of this situation financially. And so he sacrificed his paycheck, and he literally worked for free for a little while. And when he got there, this is fascinating to me, he worked on the wall. The governor himself worked on the wall, right? So he wasn't just issuing orders and telling everybody else to do this. He actually got his hands dirty and got out there and worked on the wall. Nehemiah was willing to go first. He worked hard with them and required all the people that was with him, all the servants that were with him, to work hard on building the wall as well. So Nehemiah got out there and worked hard with them. Verse 17. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now, here's the reality. If you're a governor and you're a leader in that capacity, you've got to work not just in your city on your own stuff, but you've got to work, well, we would say internationally and also with, with states that are around us. You've got to entertain. You've got to talk to people. You've got to work out deals and trade and all kinds of different things. And so Nehemiah has got to do that on top of working his nine to five, working on the wall. So what he's doing is his normal governing duties, he's doing at night and he's doing around a big table, right? So this isn't some kind of drunken party like Herod would have, right? This is, this is a, I mean, it's a big feast, but this is business. He's doing business at night around his table. Verse 18, now what was prepared at, look, now what was prepared at my expense, see, This is coming out of his own bank account. For each day was, well, okay, not a bank account, (laughs) was one ox, all right? The ox doesn't come out of the bank account. The ox ox comes out of the field. And six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. So this is coming out of his personal wealth. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Now, right away here, we see, obviously, Nehemiah has a big house. He is entertaining a lot. He's working around the table. He's very hospitable. But he did all of this during a difficult season on his own dime. See, Nehemiah was a great leader. He was aware of the fact that he was coming to town and he was asking people to sacrifice their own personal comfort. Think about it. If you are a shepherd or a carpenter or a perfumer, right? To come work on the wall, you had to stop your normal nine to five job and you had to come and become a mason to work on the wall for this season. It's going to be 50 something days. Think about the cost that comes with that, right? you're, You're away from your normal job. That means you're obviously sacrificing financially. It's going to cost them money. They they can't earn the money to feed their family. That could put their family at risk of going hungry. On top of that, you're risking financial opportunity because for the next 50 days, if somebody comes to you and they have a great business opportunity, you can't take advantage of that business opportunity because you're not there doing your normal business. You're working on the wall. On top of that, you've got domestic duties that need to be taken care of, and now you're working nine to five on the rock, on the rock wall all day, right? It's going to put a stress on your family. It's going to put a stress on your finances. It's going to literally put a stress on your back. I like to make fun of the perfumers. Probably never lifted a rock in their life, right? They're out there working on the wall. They're going to be changed after a few days. But what Nehemiah shows us here is Nehemiah wasn't just asking the people to do this great work of God and make these great sacrifices. Nehemiah led the way. He was personally sacrificing financially, and he was also sacrificing his own comfort, working on the wall with them. Leaders go first. Here's the principle. If you are going to lead anything, 
You have got to go first. You have got to take the biggest risk. You are going to have to be the one who gives first, who sacrifices first. See, mom, moms, you should know this, right? Like you literally have to sacrifice your body to give birth to a child. Like you have to lay that thing down, right? And it's not going to come back to you the same. And you know it. And you have to make sacrifices. And parents, when you raise your kids, you make sacrifices. Years on years on years on years of sacrifices. And it takes probably 20, maybe, until they, the kids actually go, oh, thanks for that, mom. <laughs> right? Thanks for that, dad. It takes about 20 years. Leaders go first. If you're an entrepreneur and you want to start a business, nobody pays you for your great idea. You got to get out there and you got to go first. You got to make some sacrifice. You got to raise some capital. You got to lay that capital down. You got to, you know, in the proverbial, buy the garage and move into the garage and create the thing and then sell the thing. And you've got to lay it down first. You got to go first. You got to sacrifice. When God called me to plant this church, I not only had to take the risk and step out there into a world that I had never really imagined before, that was full of uncertainty. I also had to make the sacrifice first. At that time, Amanda and I had our home. We had recently bought a home, and we still had another home, and, and we had turned that into a rental home. Um, we had two kids, and God called us to leave our town here and go do a church planting residency in Omaha, Nebraska. Now, the reason we had two houses at the time isn't because we just wanted to have a rental home. It's because it was 2008. And we had just experienced a downturn in the economy. The housing market had crashed. And so we couldn't sell our home at, at that time. Now, so during the 2008 housing crash, I, was, I, ha I had some skills as a preacher and a pastor. And so I was going to do that residency, but I also had skills as a carpenter and a contractor. And so we were moving to Omaha with two new kids and, and two little kids. And we were uh, moving into a, an apartment there and... I get to Omaha and I'm expecting, okay, I'm going to do some contracting work. I'll pay the bills. I'll go to my residency. And guess what? They were experiencing the housing market crash up there too. And nobody needed a contractor and nobody needed a carpenter. So here we were with two homes, paying two mortgages back home and a rent and apartment in Omaha. And what it took for that nearly two years, we had to spend our entire life savings paying our rent, paying our mortgages while I completed my residency. Now that was a part, that's just a minuscule part, but that was a part of the cost of leadership, of creating this church. And I'll tell you right now, looking back 11 years, it was worth every penny. I don't complain about it at all. When I look around here and see the people that have been saved because of that, the marriages that have been brought together and built up and renewed and restored, the families that have been changed, literally the legacies that have been changed, who knows what's going to happen in the future. When I see all so many kids growing up here with parents who love Jesus and are focused on raising disciples of Jesus, all of these blessings far outweigh any of the sacrifices we made to plant this church. But the principle still remains, and it is a never an easy decision in the moment, because guess what? When you're making the sacrifice in the moment, all you see is your bank account. I couldn't see you. You weren't here yet. So all I saw was, it's going in the wrong direction. So much so that my wife finally goes, I got you a job at Whole Foods. I said, what do you mean you got me a job? I filled out the application yesterday. They should be calling you today. Okay, so I ended up having to work at Whole Foods for a while when I was out there, right? <clears throat> so the principle remains the same. Leaders go first, and that means we must fear God more than anything else, and we, mu we must be willing to get out front and lay down our lives for the sake of the gospel. Now, I don't like talking about my, the sacrifices that I've made for this church very often, and I I won't, I'm not going to do it very often, but it's, it's, the text is driving us to, to talk about it today because Nehemiah teaches us that it's important. It's instructive for us that if we are going to lead anything, you've got to go first. If you're going to lead a missional community, you've got to go first. You've got to be the most hospitable. 
You gotta be the most gospel-centered. You gotta be the most forgiving. You gotta be the most scripturally saturated. Leaders go first. Now look what Nehemiah says to God in the very last line of his journal entry. Verse 19. Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. Now there is a sense that we can read that and we go, what? What? That seems a little arrogant. That seems a little self-centered. But it's not. It's just honest. And he's saying, listen, I'm doing my best. I've done my best. I tried to fear you and obey you above anything else. And I laid it out there and I'm putting it out here. So God, you look at my life. You remember my, my sacrifices. You remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. And what this is really, is this a man saying, I went first. God, I did it for you. Would you honor that? Would you bless that? And I think this is the Christian spirit. See, Nehemiah was a great leader. But several hundred years later, the greatest leader who ever walked the face of this planet would come. And he would come to the same city. He would walk through the same walls, the walls that Nehemiah built. He would walk through those walls and walk those streets and he would sit in the temple and he would teach its people. And his name, of course, was Jesus Christ. And Jesus wasn't just an ordinary man. He was the divine son of God. And this, we will never wrap our minds around. And it is one of the greatest callings on my life that I'm trying to help you see a better picture of Jesus, a more eternal picture, a more awe-inspiring picture of Jesus Christ. And words fail me. And this little tiddlywinks brain of mine fails me every single week. But I want you to kind of get this idea. Jesus existed eternally with God. That means God has always been a Trinitarian, Trinitarian God. Three in one. Triune, three in one. That means God in himself exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay? Out of God, everything that we see was created. Okay? He spoke it into existence. Now, God is himself eternally happy. He's not upset about anything in himself. Because the Son is perfect, the Spirit is perfect, the Father is perfect. They love one another in this perfect Trinitarian dance. And that's why love is the center of all things. And it can only be in the Christian religion. No other religion has any real um, explanation for love being the center of our life. We do. Because God is a Trinitarian being who loves himself perfectly. Okay? That's what holiness is. Now listen, I can't even get this. I can't describe what it would be like for Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, to put on flesh and come down to walk this earth, to leave that, to leave eternal happiness, eternal glory, that the fear of God is always before him because he's, he is God, right? And now to come down and to put on flesh and to experience suffering and pain and to be sinned against, but Jesus does that. He literally leaves, we say heaven, but this reality of perfection in God, he leaves that, he puts on humanity. He limits his godness for a time and he puts on humanity to come to the city to save the city, to, to redeem Jerusalem, to save us. Jesus came first. Not, I mean, not just that. He goes all the way to the cross. All the way to the cross allows humanity to, to crucify him naked in order to pay the price that we owe God for our sins. Jesus goes first. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 20. I kept reading this text and it was, the, the, the word choice just brought this text up to my mind. 
because it talked about lording it over and the servants and such. Matthew 20, verse 25 through 28. But Jesus called them to him. He's calling his disciples to him. And he says this, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. So their rulers are above them and take advantage of them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Why? Listen. Even as the Son of Man, that's Jesus, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Here's the idea. Jesus came first. Before you loved him, he loved you. Before you knew his name, he knew yours. And he died for you. Your name was on, in his mind on the cross. Your sins were in his body on the cross. Your particular sins, not sins collectively, not sins in a big general sense, like all the sins of the world. No, your sins in particular were on the cross with him and he crucified them there on the cross to set you free from them forever. He did that for you. Before you were even a thought in your mother's mind or your father's mind, he did that for you. Jesus came first and laid his life down as a ransom for you. Now here's the reality. You're meant to take that by faith and to believe it and to accept it and to love it and to cherish it and to fear God above all others because of that. Nobody else has done that for you. But and here's the other deal. Here's the other, here's the other side of that coin. We're saved not by our works, but by the works of Christ, but we're saved for good works that God, had prede God has predestined for us to walk in, Ephesians tells us. And here's the thing. He went first. He served us, he laid our life down, and that is how we are to live now. We go first, we risk first, we sacrifice first, we lay our life down first. So he is our savior, and he's also our example for the way that we live our life. So this morning, I want you to think, as you come to the Lord's table and you think about all of the the grace that God has given you in Christ and how it all comes because he came first. I also want you to think as a response to that work that Jesus has done in your heart. I want you to think, what's he calling me to step into? Where's he calling me to take a risk for his kingdom? What's he calling me to lay down and to sacrifice for God or for a brother or sister in Christ? I want you to think about that this morning. Father God, I thank you so much for this text, and I thank you for this little, just a tidbit of, to get to see inside the heart of Nehemiah and the work of this huge project that he was called to. I pray that you would make us all more like Nehemiah, uh, because Nehemiah was being shaped uh, in the image of Christ, and that you are working us towards that end, you're sanctify us, sanctifying us towards that end. So I, I pray that you would just capture uh, the imaginations of our heart, that we would fear you above all things. And Lord God, that the lesser fears, the lesser fears of our life uh, would fall away, that you would deliver us from our lesser fears through the greater fear, fearing you above all things. Thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for what you've created us to be. And thank you for what you're calling us into as a church. Um, I pray all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Amen.